Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. For 15 years president of Pepperdine University, David Davenport is now a fellow at the Hoover Institution, where he writes about international law, American politics, and the Constitution. Dr. Davenport's newest book, which he co-authored with the Ashbrook Center's Gordon Lloyd, How Public Policy Became War. David, welcome. Thanks, Peter. Great to be here. Let me quote the book. All right. We must better manage the war metaphor in public policy. The future of our republic depends on our ability to do this. You're the first man I've encountered who said the future of the republic depends on managing a metaphor. <laughs> Explain what you mean. Well, I am an academic, of course, and the phrase I used to describe my work at Hoover is saving the republic one word at a time. So <laughs> right. we, we perhaps exaggerate the value of that. Um, we argue that, that metaphors do matter, and, and metaphors in public policy end up not only describing the, the political world, but they end up prescribing what we should do about it. And so our, our experience has been that presidents have too readily declared war and called the nation into crisis, uh, partly to increase their own power, partly to uh, attack problems. So in the metaphor, the way we talk about a problem limits the way we think about a problem. Well, I think that's precisely right. right. If, if you're in a war, let's say right. a war okay. on poverty, for example, if you're in a war, well, you can't really reconsider the policy options. You can't really change direction easily because we're at war, for crying out loud. Right. And so right. we battle on in all these wars over decades of time because the war metaphor really describes the limits of what we're able to do. Okay, Franklin Roosevelt takes us to war before we go to war, and then we'll come to the more modern presidential sure. wars. Franklin Roosevelt, elected president in the Depression year of 1932. Not quite a decade later, the United States would enter the Second World War, a real war. But you argue that FDR talked about domestic issues as if they were wars long before the real war. And you, remarkable analysis of his speeches, his rhetoric. Here's a sampler from, from your book. April 7th, 1932, during the presidential campaign. It is, quote, high time to admit with courage that we are in the midst of an emergency at least equal to that of war, close quote. Another couple. July 2nd, 1932, FDR accepts the Democratic Party's nomination for president. This nomination, he said, represented, quote, more than a presidential campaign. It is a call to arms, close quote. Last one, March 4th, 1933, his first inaugural address, quote, this nation asks for action and action now. In the new administration, the federal government would be, quote, treating the task as we would treat the emergency of war. We must move as a trained and loyal army willing to sacrifice for the good of a common discipline. War, arms, loyal army, and yet all he's talking about are domestic issues. What's he doing? Well, he's uh, increasing his own executive power and influence, uh, for one thing. Um, and he's really trying to frame the attack on the Great Depression in crisis, war, emergency, action terms, so that he can get things moving. Um, and, and so, you know, on, on, on his first day in office, he drafts a bill to close the banks and, and, and uh, declare a holiday. He sends it over to Congress in the morning. Normally, Congress in those days, believe it or not, actually drafted their own bills. But in this case, Roosevelt drafts it. He sends it over. They vote on it in the afternoon. Just like today, very few in Done. Congress had even seen it. Right. Done. We're, we're in, quote, action and action now. 
And uh, one of Roosevelt's close advisors said, you know, in a way, Roosevelt didn't really care what policy we followed, just so we did things. Uh, he, he elsewhere used the phrase bold experimentation to describe what he wanted to do. So what Roosevelt really did was move the presidency from part of the Washington deliberative process to become the action arm. And, and we say in the book, what everybody remembers from the first inaugural is freedom from fear. Yes, yes, the only thing but fear is fear itself. the most predictive thing he said is the American people want action and action now. And All right. so, uh, from rhetoric to action, you just mentioned legislation that he moved extremely quickly. You also write in How Public Policy Became War about executive orders. That is, orders that a president is permitted to right. issue, has the power to issue on his own without congressional legislation. Quote, Roosevelt set the record for the most executive orders signed by a president at 3,721. George W. Bush comes in at 291 and Barack Obama at 277. So FDR is just in a class by himself. Without question. And explain again what, what's going on there. Well, uh, he, he did two things extremely well. He used his own executive power to the absolute limit. Um, someone said to me, well, of course, Roosevelt was the president so long. But then I looked it up, and even on a per-day basis, he has the most executive orders per day of any president. So he marshaled the power of the presidency. He created all those alphabet soup agencies and sort of began shifting power to the administrative state. But then secondly, he, as David Kennedy said in his wonderful book about the Depression, the New Deal, Kennedy said he rode Congress like a skilled jockey. And so he, what he didn't do by executive order, he pushed Congress to do, uh, to move into this tremendous action. The first hundred days, the most revolutionary time, we argue, in American policy history, and the New Deal, he just kept going. We want to come back, come to the current day in a moment, but still, Roosevelt is such an important figure in this story and in your book. Let's stay with him for another moment or two. Again, I'm quoting from your book, David. Prior to Roosevelt, the federal government had been relatively small, but federal spending more than tripled between 1930, which is when Herbert Hoover is ending up, well, halfway through his term, and 1940 in Roosevelt's second term. In the first six years of Roosevelt's presidency, federal employment grew by nearly 60%, from over half a million to just under a million. All told, this constitutes nothing less than a revolution in the function, power, and operation of the federal government, close quote. And elsewhere in the book you say that the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt was the American Republic's French Revolution. Indeed. It was the moment that changed everything. Elaborate on that just a bit. Well, uh, first of all, I, you, you doubtless remember uh, Obama's chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, who said uh, it's a shame to let a crisis, crisis go is a to, terrible thing to waste. Or yes. uh, to, to go to waste because it allows you to do things you couldn't otherwise do. Right. And I think Roosevelt was an early case study in that because he saw in the crisis of the Great Depression a chance to begin to implement the progressive agenda, Peter, that had been developing for decades, but was sort of waiting for the right leader and the right moment for implementation. And I think Roosevelt became that leader and the depression provided the moment. So he didn't waste that crisis. He made dramatic changes. And we argue that it was our French Revolution, and we further argue that really today, 80 years later, the New Deal is the paradigm of American domestic policy. We're still living under the New Deal. We just expand it. We add you know, health care to Social Security. We add other benefits and powers, but we're still working under that New Deal uh, paradigm. Now, there, there's an argument in the book, David, I want to tease this out a little bit, because the argument as concerns Roosevelt, the New Deal, the 
ingathering of executive power takes place at a couple of levels. One level is analytical. You're simply saying, look, before Roosevelt, this is the way the government right. functioned. Ever since, this is the way it functions. But there's also, um, you're also discussing values here. And you and your co-author are pretty disapproving of Franklin <laughs> Roosevelt. You don't, you don't particularly care for America's French Revolution. Well, is that no. right? Is that fair? No, I think that is fair. Uh, Gordon and I have written three books together, yes. and they all start in the New Deal. And that's no coincidence, because we think that is a part of the fundamental problem. That's when a major shift took place in not only our values as a country, um, but also in how the government operates and the role of government in people's lives. Uh, and so we, we think you have to start there. To understand policy today, you have to start with Roosevelt okay. and the French Revolution and action and action now. That's kind of when the whole modern presidency so began. So we'll stay with Roosevelt just one more moment. Of course. Happy to. I want to see what you do with the pro-Roosevelt argument. Right? Okay. And I'll give you the pro-Roosevelt argument from the most interesting corner <laughs> uh, from which the argument gets made. Conrad Black's biography of FDR. Conrad Black being a conservative, right. a publisher and journalist, major figure in Canada, who's written a, a massive biography. This will take a moment to read, but sure. this is the argument. And I just would love to see what you do with it. I even want to watch your face as I read this. <laughs> so Conrad Black's book is called Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Champion of Freedom. Quote, Roosevelt stole the arguments of the left, enacted very diluted legislative versions of them, and deprived the left of any possibility of political success. It was not just a witticism when Socialist Party leader Norman Thomas said that Roosevelt was carrying out the Socialist Party's program in a coffin. He was both the savior of American capitalism and the foremost reformer in the country's history. Thus did he deliver the country from overexposure to extremes of right and left. American capitalism ceased to be a menace to itself and became an unambiguous engine to greater and better distributed national prosperity." Close quote. Whatever he did, he did what was necessary, and he saved the republic. Right. Well, um, I do think that a, a very important issue that Roosevelt tackled, and Teddy Roosevelt had tackled it before him, was what is the proper role of government in regulating the economy, in, right. in, in regulating big business? And, and I think, you know, some tough decisions did have to be made, and the, the Great Depression was the obvious window of opportunity to address that. But the notion of replacing that, this is where I have a greater problem with, with the argument that, that he makes, um, replacing that with government planning seems to be fallacious to me. The, the notion that the government can do a better job of planning how the economy will work. And of course, that's the conceit that sort of originated with Woodrow Wilson. Right. You know, we don't need politics anymore, we have experts. And so experts can right. plan the economy. Herbert Hoover, his great nemesis, called it economic regimentation, you know, where we're going to plan what farmers can grow and so forth. Um, so I think he did tackle some, some important issues about the government's role in economic regulation. And that little corner of the argument I could accept. But I think the notion of replacing that with government planning is really uh, sort of a pie-in-the-sky right. uh, solution. All right. Uh, FDR's successors, again, from how public policy became war. And I'll, I'll just list some of the, again, this is a sampler from your own book. Okay. His first State of the Union address, President Lyndon Johnson declares a war on poverty. A year or so later, Johnson declares a war on crime. 
1970, Richard Nixon. This is bipartisan. Uh, Johnson's a Democrat, Nixon's a Republican. President Nixon says this, quote, if there is one area where the word war is appropriate, it is in the fight against crime. We must declare and win the war against the criminal elements, close quote. 1977, Jimmy Carter addresses the need, quote, to ba balance our demand for energy with our rapidly shrinking resources. This difficult effort will be the moral equivalent of war, close quote. And then, of course, after the attacks of 9-11, President George W. Bush declares the war on terror. Now, there was warfare. There were people sure. shooting at sure. and being shot and so forth. Right. But he was declaring a war on an abstraction. He was declaring a war on a right. noun, right. war on terror, not a territory, not a country. All right. Presidents, I'm quoting once again, presidents from 1945 to 1963 essentially made the New Deal paradigm permanent. Post-war presidents Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy continued to build on the rhetoric of war. And then, of course, we see it taking, continuing right through George W. Bush. Right. And you don't like that. No, Doesn't I, it begin to seem inevitable when, when we're in our sixth or seventh decade of <laughs> presidents addressing domestic issues as if they were wars? Yeah, I, I, I think our view would be that um, we, we end up declaring many of these domestic policy wars because we don't know what else to do. We, we didn't really have a lot of policy solutions to the poverty problem or the crime problem or drugs. And so we, we said, well, let's, de let's declare war. Let's move into an action and action now agenda rather than a thoughtful policy agenda. But if you add up all those wars, Peter, here we are today, 50, 60 years later, and none of the wars have been won. None of the wars have been terminated. We still operate under those paradigms today. Um, presidential power increases as a result of this. We think that's no coincidence. Executive federal power over state and local power increases. Crime, of course, was a, it was a local issue before the federal government declared war on it. So lots of important things happen, but we don't really solve the problems. We just end up in endless wars. So the rhetoric of war moves power and resources from the states to the federal government and within the federal government from Congress to the president, Precisely. which would be one thing if we actually made progress on the issues. Precisely. But all that happens is a shuffling around of resources and power. The issues just continue and continue and continue. Absolutely. And, and as you said in your earlier question, you know, when you declare war on an abstraction, you know, a lot of obvious questions come up. Well, who's the enemy? Well, who, right. who is the enemy in poverty? Who is the enemy in the war on drugs? Are we going, and, and it's questions of strategy. Are, are we going after supply or demand on drugs? Well, we didn't really know. Um, and so lots of questions are, are jumped over in the war metaphor and not carefully addressed. And then once you're in war, you can't really call a timeout and address because them again war. because we're still in war. So it, it has a very dramatic and long-lasting impact. Uh, you mentioned, even as we, you, you talk at one point not only about the war rhetoric but executive orders, you also talk about the uh, National Emergencies Act, which right. President Ford signs into right. law right. in 1976. It's in, been in the news again. Your book, How Public Policy Became War, quote, as many as 28 national emergencies are still in effect. Right. These emergencies cover everything from vessels near Cuba, democratic <laughs> processes in Zimbabwe, exporting goods to Syria and Liberia, to cyber warfare, exp export control regulations, and narcotics trafficking. Close quote. No, here's another quote. President Bill Clinton alone enacted 17 national emergencies. Uh, and how th this fits into your argument, how? 
Well, a, a national emergency has the effect of undoing a lot of normal constraints on a president. And so a president, by declaring an emergency, gains all kinds of powers that he can exercise unilaterally. Um, and of course, again, it moves into just pure action, a president taking action. So here we are today. By the way, we're now at 31 wars. We were at 28 when we wrote the book several months ago. We've grown to 31 already. Uh, and the oldest one was enacted by Jimmy Carter. I mean, if you ask the typical American, you know, how many states of national emergency are there? I don't think anybody would get close to 31. No. And no one would say that you know, the earliest one was, what, 40 years ago, and we still live under it. So you, you sort of add up all of these domestic wars and all these national emergencies. You have a major shift in power to the president. You have a major shift away from deliberation in government to action. And, and Trump's wall is a classic example. I mean, the deliberative process actually reached one conclusion, and then Trump said, well, I don't care. I'm, you know, I have the power to do it, and I I'm just going to I will declare a national it. emergency at the border. Precisely. And according to statute, Correct. once a president does that, unless right. two-thirds of Congress Stops overrides him, right. him, once he flips the switch, he gets to spend money without, Correct. without the usual constraints. He can Correct. shift resources around. Correct. Okay, so why wouldn't a president flip that switch whenever he's frustrated? <laughs> well, why wouldn't we end up with 31 national emergencies? Precisely. Still, It'd be hard to resist. Place. And has been. <laughs> and has been. Okay, we start with Roosevelt. We come all the way to Trump, but now let's jump way back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. What the founders intended. Right. You quote the Federalist Papers extensively. Again, a little sampler from your book, John Madison in Federalist Number 63. Quote, this is beautiful. Well, of course, they all wrote beautifully, but this is, it's powerful and important. Quote, the cool and deliberate sense of the community ought in all government ultimately to prevail, close quote. Cool and deliberate, not the elite cool and deliberate, but the sense of our community. Right. Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 71, quote, the deliberate sense of the community deliberate sense of the community should govern the conduct of those to whom they entrust the management of their affairs." Close quote. Your book, you and your co-author write, if in the view of the founders pure democracy was a problem, then deliberation was the solution. Deliberation made democracy safe for the world. Explain that. Uh, a little insight into our co-authoring process. So we're driving in the car together, Gordon and I, one day. and. And we're, we're getting all worked up about the war metaphor, which, right. of course, only academics can do. And then I turn to Gordon. He's in the passenger seat. And I say, so what was it supposed to be if not war? Mm. And he sat there for a while and he said, deliberation. It, it was supposed to be about deliberation. We sent people to Washington to represent the people. Government in Washington is supposed to base, be based on consent of the governed and looking for the cool and deliberate sense of the community. Uh, and so that's... That's really what's been lost. I mean, just to take a class. Cool and deliberate is the very opposite <laughs> of, course. of the frame of mind you have when you're going to war. It's of not course. action and action now, it's slow down. Let's think things over. Precisely. Totally Precisely. different frame of mind. Precisely. And, and to take a, an example that's quite current in Congress these days, you, you think about it, what does Congress do these days? Well, they don't deliberate. They don't hold hearings. They don't process amendments. They don't have debates. Um, they hold bills, sometimes in secret, until they know they have 51 the leaders, party line the, votes. The party precisely. Leaders, right. And then they spring it. On the, I mean, the, as somebody has said, the world's greatest deliberative body, which is what the U.S. Senate has been called over time, hardly deliberates anymore. Right. And so it's, 
the, the, the contrast is really quite sharp, as you say. The founders would barely recognize the, the way Congress, for example, and the president operate I remember, today. I, I remember suffering insomnia two months ago. And so I went to turn on C-SPAN, <clears throat> which was broadcasting. Uh, this was a rebroadcast of the Senate chamber. And it was a fairly dramatic moment. They were building up to a vote of some kind. But in the chamber, what the camera picked up was senators milling around, chatting with each other. <laughs> of course. And then the leaders, uh, Mitch McConnell right. and his Democrat account and a couple of committee chairmen, every so often they would just walk out of the chamber. Right. And you could tell that's where the action was. Right. The action was among the partisan leaders, right. not the Senate of right. the United States meeting in right. on, the, on the chamber floor. All right. Fascinating aspect of the book is that you, when the founders called for deliberation and finding the sense of the community, it wasn't just an abstraction. It was something that very quickly was demonstrated to work. The first sentence, I'm quoting again from your book, the first sentence of the first paragraph of the first essay in The Federalist, you, you the, you the reader, right. you were called upon to deliberate on a new constitution for the United States of America and deliberate, you write, they did. Some 2,000 elected officials, this, these would be state assemblies, or state right. bodies, right. deliberated for more than a year and reached a decision without spilling a drop of blood, close quote. That was a dramatic event by the standards of the day, was it not? Yes, and, and uh, it, it's really worth studying uh, how the they ratification about that. process. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. I mean, the convention itself, um, as you know, decided to be held in secret. Right. And there was some controversy about that. Jefferson thought it should be more transparent, though that wasn't the word in the, of the day. Um, but what it allowed them to do at the convention itself was to change their minds and to backtrack, which, of course, I mean, if you do that today, you're under immediate attack from your party right. and, and in the media. But it allowed them to listen thoughtfully to compromise proposals. You had, you know, all kinds of compromises that took place. Um, and, and so it allowed for a certain kind of deliberation. And then they just trusted a deliberative process. They said, we're going to send this out to the states now, and the states are going to have to work their way through this. And we recorded the book, you know, several votes that changed over yes, time. Again, people changing their minds. Let me read that. The expected vote in Massachusetts going into the ratification process was no at 178 to 177. But the final vote was yes at 187 to 168. New, New Hampshire, Virginia, both appeared deadlock going in and both ratify. In New York, the projected vote was 46 to 19 against, more than 2 to 1 against, but the final tally was 30 to 27 in favor. In other words, elected officials thought things through, talked matters over, right. and changed their minds. Right. Uh, sadly, I, I think this is no great revelation to you or to your viewers, but um, really what happens now in Congress and in Washington is basically a political show, political theater. It is not deliberation. And so we don't take votes that, that might cause a member to have to take an unpopular, cast an unpopular right. vote and risk being run against in the primary or risk re-election. Um, as I said, we kind of hold bills in secret. We don't, we don't deliberate. We don't change our minds. And so a lot of the, the things that the founders thought were the, the essence of how the democracy would work doesn't really work if your goal is political theater, if, if, you're, if your goal is to, is to be loyal to your party and to raise money and be reelected. And so it's a, it's a tough uh, application to make that to people today. What is to be done? All the right. The I, tough chapter of the book. Yes, exactly. <laughs>
how public policy became war. I'll set this up. up this, this is a longish quotation, but it's important. Our political leaders need to make Congress great again. Need to make Congress great again. Clawing back powers that is ceded to the president over time, starting with war powers in the budget. Congress needs to step up to its proper constitutional role. Congress must also return to regular order and become more deliberative itself. Regular order being bills introduced, considered thoroughly in committee, voted out of committee, and then considered by each chamber as a whole, not party leaders doing deals behind right. doors and then springing votes at the last moment. Restoring the power of committees and committee chairs over that of party leaders. Rules changes can help that. In, but in the main, we need more statesmen and fewer party loyalists in Congress. Okay, let's take this bit by bit. <laughs> War powers and the budget. How should Congress reassert itself? What incentive does Congress have to reassert itself? This system works fine for members of Congress. <laughs> they get to grandstand, let the president, the administration, take real responsibility. Right. And then they go home, and depending on, they can talk out of both sides of their mouth when they're running for re-election. Works fine. Well, I mean, I, I think the premise of your question is absolutely correct, which is the travel. Uh, power has traveled a one-way trip down Pennsylvania Avenue from Congress to the president. But it's not just because presidents have been grasping power, it's because Congress has been ceding power. Right. And so we are doubtful that, that the presidents are going to suddenly say, well, let's give back power to Congress. We think Congress is going to have to claw that power back. And, and you're right, the incentives uh, are, are tough to find. But I, I do think, I mean, clearly we're going to need some statesmen. I mean, you know, uh, John McCain, a maverick, people had different views of McCain. But you remember when he flew back with his cancer to cast what was thought to be the deciding vote on repealing Obamacare? Against repealing Obamacare. And, and right. he surprised he everyone by saying, party. I'm going to vote against this because we haven't basically followed the right process. We, you know, we haven't consulted the governors. We haven't really talked about what would be a useful. Exactly. And, I, and so I'm going to vote against this kind of emergency, uh, warlike uh, sort of action. Well, it's going to take some statesmen like that. We think it's also probably going to take, um, unfortunately, some moments of crisis. We, I mean, we could see, for example, Congress deciding that the president is a little too risky on, on foreign policy and war. And so maybe Congress has to claw back some war powers. Um, and so we're not sure what leaders might arise, what statesmen might arise. We're not sure what Do events Do you see anybody? Come. Can you name any younger talent? That strikes well, you as hopeful. Here, here's the funny thing, Peter. You know, if 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 people in Congress and the Senate get together now to work on a bipartisan basis, they're called the Gang of Nine or the Gang of Seven, and they have to meet in a broom closet, you know, because they you know they can't be seen to be out right. deliberating and compromising. Um, but yes, we see we see a few hopeful signs. We, there are members of Congress who have been working on immigration policy that could be useful to both sides. You have members who actually have started looking at the budget more carefully. Uh, Marco Rubio, Senator, Republican yeah, Senator of Florida. Yeah, he would be he would be one of those. Ben Sass of Nebraska, Republican Absolutely, Nebraska. former college president. Former college president. <laughs> former man. young college president, <laughs> exactly. just like you. Uh, Senator Portman of Ohio. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. And there are, there are some deliberators, but the incentives are sort of working against them. 
But, but the key points that we try to make are, yes, we need to make Congress great again. It needs to, right. deliberation, if it's going to happen, is going to happen in the Congress. So we need to make Congress great again to, to have meaningful deliberation. But second, we also have to make Congress more deliberative again. It's not enough to just keep passing bills on party line votes. Could I just try a couple of thoughts that occurred to me? All right. You're the man who wrote the book, and I'm just the guy who read it. <laughs> but if we are attempting to get back to the deliberative process the founders had in mind, here's a striking fact. Congress first meets, Congress number one of the United States meets in 1789. The House consisted of 59 members, right. the Senate of 22. Right. The House today is 435 full right. members, a couple of observers right. who don't have voting status. The Senate is 100. And um, it, those bodies are just too big. Right. If you're a member of the Senate and you're one of 22, you have real responsibility. Right. You have nowhere to hide. If you're a member of the House and you're one of 435, oh, for goodness sake, Really, you end up just doing constituency services. You try to get the vet a better deal in the veterans' hospital. <laughs> the idea of shaping policy, but if you're one of only 49. So what do you think of that? The institution just grew too much. There are too many of them. Well, I mean... I, I have uh, no idea how you'd scale it back, but... No, but think? I think, you know, as... as uh, I often tell students when they're asking me to recommend a college or something based on my experience in that field, I say, you know, you need to decide if you want to go to a small college or a larger university... But what will happen is if you go to a larger university, you have to break it down. You know, you'll join a fraternity right. or sorority or you'll live in a dorm or you'll be on a, this team or that team. You'll break it down and make it work in pieces. And that's how I think the federal government, I think the, one of the best things we could do if I had my top ten things to do to help make Congress deliberative again is I would begin restoring power to committees and committee chairs. And you could have real, you're right, you're probably not going to have great deliberation on the floor with 435 people. But you could in committee. And so if we could begin to pull back some of the powers that have floated up to these party leaders, majority and minority leaders, and put them back in the committees, and the committees could be places of real debate and deliberation again. That seems feasible to me. David, have you ever, this is my last, this is my last wacko thought, <laughs> except that it's not entirely wacko. Have you ever thought about the Singapore solution? And here's what I mean by the Singapore solution. Singapore pays public officials well. There are public officials in Singapore who are paid more than a million dollars a year. Wow. And so maybe we should just pay these people more. And maybe, here's the, here's the, here's the thought experiment. If every member of Congress got a $1 million bonus each year in which we reduced the deficit by 10%, right? <laughs> right. in a decade, the deficit would be zero. Well, Isn't that right? Don't well, you, we know that? As you know, California tried a version of that. We said we're not going to pay our legislators. The, pay, the paychecks stop until the budget's approved. So, I mean, it's a slightly different issue, but they, they couldn't get budgets done in Sacramento. So they said, well, then we're just not going to pay. Well, miraculously now, they get budgets done on time. But, of course, agreeing on what we want to incentivize, you and I would incentivize reducing the deficit. Others would think, well, that's not the, the place we need incentives. We need you know, incentives for a bigger safety net or so, a bigger so welfare state. What do you think? You, you're, you're a former college president. You raised money. That means you spent a lot of time with really successful business figures. And you know what they often say. They often say, oh, doggone it. If only we could attract some people from business to Congress. As mm -hmm. it is now, the Democrats have the advantage because for a 
a social worker or a community organizer, the pay you get as a member of Congress is pretty good. Step up. But not, <laughs> right, for, for some Republican businessman who's some senior vice president at uh, a big corporation, you, they can't afford the pay cut. What do you, I mean, what do you think of this whole notion that the incentives attract the wrong people to Congress? Yeah, I, I guess I'm not as convinced you that, just don't go for that, that we do don't you? have good people there. Okay. I think they're working in a bad system. And, and so I think if we could make some changes to the system and the process, that we have good enough people who could make that work. All right. David, last couple of questions here. One final time, I'm quoting from How Public Policy Became War. The executive branch comprises 180 agencies, 4.1 million civilian and active military employees, and a budget of $3.9 trillion a year. Congress consists of a handful of agencies, has 10,000 employees, and is funded at $4.3 billion a year, which is, sounds like real money until you contrast it to the trillions in the executive branch. Congress enacts perhaps 50 significant laws each year. Executive agencies issue 4,000 new rules per year. That's the quotation. And then I'd like you to watch a brief video. The video comes from a 2015 appearance on this program of our friend Hugh Hewitt. Yeah. Last time I interviewed Justice Scalia, this is about 18 months or so ago, he spoke, as of course few people can, with real, real love, really, for the Constitution and the constitutional order. And he concluded this beautiful little paragraph with the following words, and I'm quoting him, we had a good thing here. And then he corrected himself, and he said, we have a good yeah, thing here. Yeah, past tense. <laughs> well, that's what struck yeah. me as well. So five years from now, that gets us a few years into the next administration. Where will we be? Will the constitutional order, will the republic be receding in the distance? Well, I think Scalia gave you exactly a hint of the pessimism I put on the table, which yeah. is that I don't know how you can turn this much of a nightmare around. He, President Obama set out to fundamentally transform America. He has fundamentally transformed America. A Republican who wishes to campaign on fundamentally retransforming it back might have legs, but thus far no one's actually said that. David? It's over. <laughs> the republic that you celebrate in this book, the republic of the founders, has been replaced first by FDR, but now ratified again and again and again over seven decades by a vast technocratic administrative state, and the old republic isn't coming back. Even Hugh Hewitt, our friend, even Hugh Hewitt, who loves the old republic as much as you do, says it may all be over. And David Davenport responds? Well, first of all, it makes me think of a bumper sticker I saw on the 405 freeway in Los Angeles in big letters at the top, there is no hope, and in smaller letters, but I may be wrong. <laughs> Which is, that's sort of my sentiment. I get a little grumpy about the future. And again, when Gordon and I co-author books, uh, we have this debate. He is more optimistic than I am. And we've concluded one reason is that Gordon is actually an immigrant. And so he came to this country it was a sense of relief for him to see all of the good things that are still available and how well things do work. I grew up in the country with certain expectations of how the country was going to work, and it's declined, I think, since and Well, you also, I let's say you grew up in Kansas. I did. Where there's a strong sense of value sure, and community. Sure. And deliberation. And deliberation. Absolutely. And neighborliness. Exactly. Um, I do think that um, 
I do think that President Trump is on the right track to take some of the measures he's taken to begin to limit the administrative state. Um, you know, eliminating regulations for everyone that you have to add. Um, I do think that there are other proposals that will help. Having Congress approve certain of the fundamental regulations is, a, is out there as an idea that's gaining some support. Um, I hate to say this as, as a conservative, but I actually think if we're going to make Congress great again, we may have to let Congress bulk up a little bit in terms of its own staffing and its ability to oversee things. Now, I would insist on coupling that with reform. In other mm -hmm. words, I wouldn't just put more money into the present Congress. But I think if Congress were really going to get active in the budget, well, you know, the president's OMB is going to overwhelm anything that a Senate staff could put together. So I think if Congress is going to play a meaning, meaningful role, we may actually have to increase some of their staffing and even some of their membership. I admit it's going to be a tough fight, but I don't know what else to do, Peter, right. but to keep fighting. David Davenport, co-author of How Public Policy Became War, thank you. Thank you, Peter. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution, and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.